Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds podcast. This is episode number 113. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Adam and Caitlin. What's up? Hello, and we have a special guest this week. We are joined by Dave Cade. He's currently a postdoc at Hopkins Marine Station. He actually started out as an educator in uh, the outdoors, but also teaching math before returning to his uh returning to science to pursue his passions. He has a master's degree in education from Stanford University, but then also has a master's degree in oceanography from Oregon State University. Go Beavs. And his PhD is from Stanford as well, Hopkins Marine Station. He was in the Goldbogen lab. He has done postdoctoral work at UC Santa Cruz in the biotelemetry and behavioral ecology lab. And he has also done his he's currently postdocing at Hopkins again. Um, Dave's a whale tag extraordinaire, like studies all kinds of cool predators in the ocean. And uh, we're super excited to talk to you today. So thanks for being on, Dave. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And if you want to add anything about your background, feel free. Um, that was just the highlight reel. <laughs> uh, I also like long walks on the beach. And uh... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> perfect you like whales oh uh, every yeah every day <laughs> uh, every, every time i learn something more i get more excited about it yeah right. us too <laughs> so you your like early career was more in the education field so if you could touch on a little bit about like what was your teaching background and then how you sort of came back to marine science i think you have an interesting path compared to some people for a while and then I and then uh, doing outdoor education kinds of things and wilderness therapy programs and then I uh, was right after college I did that and then I taught high school I taught high school math in uh, San Francisco and then in Redwood City California um, and uh, loved it but I was always trying to I don't know looking for something to just keep expanding my skill set do something different and I just when I switched careers I was looking back into science and I the first thing I did was a uh, program that uh, was based out of the University of Washington called BeamReach, and it was a killer whale acoustics program. And uh, we would go up there, and we—I did a course essentially. It was a, like spent my spent my teacher savings, my big teacher dollars, on <laughs> a um, a course up at, there in Friday Harbor Laboratories, where we did five weeks uh, on a sailboat uh, doing field research with killer whales, and five weeks um, uh, on land, like doing analysis and data processing and and uh, research. And it was kind of my first introduction to really like kind of hardcore research science, like dedicated research program. And I loved it for all of the reasons. I loved it because we're out on a sailboat, like working with killer whales and seeing, seeing animals and, and doing passive acoustic recordings. And I loved it because the quantitative aspect was exactly what I was teaching. I was teaching pre-calculus and I was doing a lot of trigonometry and, and, <laughs> uh, and, inter and, and uh, you know, conic sections and parabolas and things. And when I was studying acoustics, it was just a merger of all these things, like to study killer whales, to study acoustics, it's a lot of trigonometry. Like so describing sound waves is a trigonometric function, you know. And so you're wow. using these trigonometric ideas, and then to do things like I like localize where a killer whale vocalization comes from, or any vocalization, any sound in the ocean. Imagine if you have like four different uh, hydrophones, right? Well, hydrophone is an acoustic recorder recording sound. So you have four different locations, and the sound from an animal is going to arrive at those four locations at slightly different times because the mm -hmm. speed of sound actually takes some time to arrive. And so to describe where that killer whale comes, sound actually comes from, it's like this series of intersecting hyperbolas between these two, all these hydrophones. And that's how you can find where that killer whale localizes. And so wow. I had this like immediate connection 
to all the work I was doing with my kids. And I could go back later and like talk to my old students and be like, yeah, this is what, this is exactly all these things I taught you. I'm like using kind of in my everyday life now. So it's a, it's been fun for me to go back and do those things. So I like both the quantitative aspect and the field research and, and being outside and, you know, working on boats and those kind of things too. So it's a good, really good career for me. Nice. That's awesome. Wow. Seems like the, the best, the most fun way to use math. Yeah, I wish a teacher would have told me that. Yeah. I would have been yeah. less scared about math in college if like they would have been like, well, this is what you use for sound waves and killer whales. I've been like, oh, I'm in. Okay. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, hy hyperboles are as about as far as my college education got. The second I hit those, I was like, eh, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it's all so, relevant. Yeah, this is true. Um, so what are you currently working on? I guess we'll kind of like fast forward to what you're doing now. Uh-huh. I'm going to go uh, take a little side angle here. I'm actually working on sharks. Um, oh. But uh, giant filter feeding sharks. So I do a lot oh. of work with uh, my current postdoc is actually involving basking sharks. So no way. In Ireland, um, oh, working cool. with uh, basking shark population out there, feeding, feeding wow. animals. And there's a lot of parallels, of course, between uh how basking sharks utilize the ocean and the and filter feed and how baleen whales filter feed in the mm -hmm. ocean. So looking at looking at a lot of the similarities between these these two giant filter feeding animals. Um and, and there's a lot of uh parallel history for how they were exploited. Basking sharks were like a yeah. huge yeah. fishery for a long time and off the Irish coast and everywhere they have a lot of oil in their livers. They're really fatty. And so they were, uh, they were hunted to near extinction off the Irish coast, but they're coming back. And now you have big groups. I saw one day, I saw 100 basking sharks. Wow. I saw yeah. one. <laughs> yes. And there was the one in Monterey. You guys see the one yeah, in Monterey recently? I, I, yes. Oh, I had, wow. An, nice. I had an insane encounter with it. Uh, it was amazing. And we just, had, we just had three in Santa Barbara, too, not too long ago. So that's oh, wow. super funny. Yeah, I guess I guess Within we like four, a month, right? four of us have seen basking sharks. That's the first for the podcast, I think. Yeah. Every, at some point, every, nobody's seen one or somebody hasn't seen one. So that's cool. Yeah. I saw him on the East Coast um, yeah. in the North Atlantic. I wasn't out the day that it was sighted in Monterey, but super cool. So can you put a suction cup tag on a basking shark? Isn't their skin like hard? <laughs> To do that. Uh, yeah, they have some the dental that makes the suction cup tagging harder. And so we we did a, a barbed tag, but then the tag. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay. Gotcha. So are you like the to me, the Gold Bogan Lab's kind of famous for making their own tags in-house. Was that the same thing for the basking sharks, or is it kind of already been refined? Uh interesting question. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. We're getting like a, a reputation. Although I don't know. <laughs> We do actually, we, we don't actually do a lot in Goldbogen Lag of, of making tags completely from scratch. We, we work with a, a company in Australia a lot called CATS, a customized animal tracking solutions. I tell people, if you just, if you just Google CATS videos, I'm sure you'll find it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but they're a great company. And they're the ones who actually kind of design, they're an Australian, Australian, Australian group, and they kind of integrate the sensors that we use with the video cameras that we use and the hydrophones and and have worked with us in a lot of different pieces. So we do do a lot of kind of tag adjustment and design and make things work. There's always an element of tinkering, but we do kind of pre-order a lot of these things with another company. But for these basking shark tags, we had a lot of, uh, of uh, in-house tinkering to do to try to think about what the best attachment method is and how to get the tags back and how to kind of connect a bunch of different pieces. We're kind of get a speed sensor on there and a cat's tag with a video camera and different accelerometer on the, on the body versus an accelerometer 
up on that can measure where the floating tag is. And so we, mm. it's a whole different, a whole different system. And so we, we have done a lot of, uh, it built off all my whale work to really, to really get into this expertise. And we worked with some uh, cool researchers in uh, Dublin, uh, Nick Payne's lab up there with uh, Haley Dalton was our big uh, tagger there. She did an awesome job. And then Taylor Chapel at Oregon State, uh, his group and Alex McIntosh who work a lot with uh, sharks. So it's a new field for me. And it's one of the best things we do as scientists is get to collaborate with people from all over different areas and, and really kind of build our different skill sets because it really is a situation where not one person can do everything. You need a lot of different people to be involved. Yeah. When did you start that project? Uh, we just did the field work last over the month of May and, and middle of April. So okay. we've been, I've been working on it, kind of getting stuff set up since the fall. And so will you be going back to Ireland? That's the idea is kind of work on the data we got this year and then go back, uh, go back next spring. So is that the best time of year to go there to work on basking sharks? Well, for me, I, I, this is, uh, people always ask me like, well, how come, how come, you know, there's whales in Hawaii. Why don't we go out and work in Hawaii? Or my wife asked me that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> right. But uh, the answer is because I study foraging. I study, I study feeding mechanics. And so that usually happens in cold places mm -hmm. um, for whales and for basking sharks. And so yeah. uh, in the spring is where the primarily feeding at the surface seems to happen in um, spring and, and kind of early summer for these sharks off the Irish coast. But they're there for a while. Like those often big, big aggregations in August, but they're social aggregations. Mm -hmm. And they'll do these big kind of shark tornadoes um, where yeah. they kind of swim in these, like you'll get 50 or 100 sharks kind of swimming in circles. And we think it must be some kind of mating and breeding behavior, but we haven't actually seen that actual behavior, yeah. but something, you know, adjacent to some kind of social behavior. Wow, that's wow. super cool. Yeah, yeah and the, on the East Coast of the U.S., like they would see them in May and June. And then they, I think they'd keep going north up towards like Canada. So I was just curious. Well, and the sharks kind of the too. Same. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just curious if it's kind of the same. Well, yeah, it, that's the that's our understanding. But the other problem with sharks is that they we only log them when they're at the surface. Yeah, and they don't have to surface. So there yep. could be a hundred sharks at ten meters depth, and you just never see them. And so yeah. that's kind of one of the things we're trying to learn with with tags is what where do they spend their time when they're not available to watch? Versus whales are great because they have to be. So that if there's a whale around, eventually it'll pop up. Yeah, true. Is there a, might be a mile main... away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there a main purpose for the research? Like are you doing a population assessment or just kind of broad tag data or? Yeah, well, this project, I mean, we when we're doing collaborations, everyone's got a slightly different thing. One person was working on, Alex was working on um, uh, social behavior. Uh, other people are working on the biomechanics of, of uh, motion and just what does a shark actually do? And yeah. how does, is it, what's its, uh, how does it maintain its, its, its uh, kind of energy and, and, and energy use? Um, my project specifically is uh, part of a larger project looking at the filters and the biomechanics of the filters and how the filters actually actually work. Cool. So my role is to kind of look at how that animal moves when it's feeding versus when it's not feeding and what does that say about the kind of the drag that's required and the drag from, oh, from And I'll tell you what, watching the basking shark feed here was amazing. It's just so yeah. cool watching it. Just yeah. cut through the yeah, water. You see the gill rakes and all that yeah. stuff behind. It's so cool. One thing I thought was really cool when we saw when I saw it here was it was going through anchovy schools at the same time. And so the anchovies were like lighting up and flying, uh, like boiling out of the water. So that was pretty cool. That's super cool. Yeah. So when you oh. did your P 
PhD, you were doing whale tagging. Is that right? As some yes. of your field work? Okay. Yep. Um, I don't know if you, was it more than one project to do your PhD or how did that work? I don't know if you want to just elaborate on some of the work that you did previously for Hopkins. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to my idea of, uh, of uh, my path where I came to Hopkins now with, a, with an oceanography degree and, a, and an acoustics, an active acoustics background, meaning you could use acoustics to send a sound into the water, look at the ping and look at the reflection of sound and that can tell you something about what's in the water. Specifically, it can tell you the density and distribution of, of prey, of krill or of anchovies or of some amount of food. And so I brought that skill set with me into my PhD and then so then most of my projects were then about kind of combining what is the prey doing with what are the predators doing. And so you, you put a tag on a whale and, it, uh, and uh, you can have different projects, we'll have different study species. And then you can look at what that whale does underwater in relation to the prey. And so I did that work in a lot of different places. We worked in Monterey Bay. We looked at, worked on blue whales and humpback whales in Monterey Bay um, where we were based. And that was great field work. But we also got to do projects on minke whales and humpback whales in the Antarctic. And we did a project on uh, supergroups, big aggregations of uh, humpback whales, up to 150 animals or 200 animals in the space of about 100, 100 meters by 100 meters. Wow. Um, wow. Off the coast of South Africa. Okay. And so wow. we worked with uh, people at the Department of the Environment there. And that was really wow. cool. Can you Is it scary to be around that many whales at once? Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Sure. Like, yeah, whales are unpredictable. They're big, and they and they're they they have humpbacks have really powerful flukes, and and you know you don't want to you don't want to startle them. You're trying to you need to work with boat drivers you trust, like the people, the people who are who like the tagger. I so I'm often the person like on the back my background here. I'm the I'm the tagger. It's one of my roles that I've played. Um, so you're standing on the front of the boat with the pole and you try to get within six meters. You have a six meter pole, so you got to get within six meters of the animal and you get that, that tag on there. But really the tagger is just the muscle. The driver is really the skill position here. It's like someone who can really knows animals and knows how to like get to read the animal. So you know when they're going to come up, get you to the right distance away um, and uh, be safe. Do that all in kind of a safe manner and know when to go for it and when to kind of back off and let the animal, animal be at peace. It's, uh, I've been lucky to work with some really great Great boat Can't imagine getting up and tagging those blue whales. <laughs> it's it's pretty special. Blue whales are amazing. If you've ever seen a blue whale, you know that like it's it's just seen like it kind of surfaces and then goes and then goes and then goes and goes and finally maybe you see the tail and it's just like just kind of yeah. feels like it takes forever because you see most of that animal exposed yeah. at the surface as it rolls and it's just kind of take and it's cool and they. And you end up at the clear day where the sun's coming in and you can kind of see that glow underwater, that yep. nice blue glow. And you're, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty special. So I feel really lucky to have been close to them. About how many feet away do you guys get the boat? Because how long is that pole actually? Uh, the pole is six meters. So it's about 20 feet long. Okay. Um, and uh, that's, that's how far away you get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How much control do you have when it's like all the way extended? Cause like you kind of have to have some finesse, right? You want it in a specific place on the whale. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, one of the tags we put on is a, is a ECG tag, a heart rate tag. It can measure, uh, the, it has two little electrodes in the suction cups, um, embedded in the suction cups. And uh, you know, we're out on the boat on the musculus out there is the name of the boat. And I'm out there with uh, James who's my driver and Paul Punganis who is a, who is a, um, uh, anesthesiologist. He's a full-time anesthesiologist down at UC San Diego. 
and he uh and but he retired and now he just like works on marine mammals almost like full time and so we're trying to get this ecg tag on there and paul says like okay dave just get that tag on the whale above wherever the heart is and so you're trying you have to have a little bit of a little bit of control that the answer to your question is like oh how much control do you have and and uh you're trying and you have a vision of where you want the tag to go but it doesn't always work that way like the animal moves differently or or your boat's moving and you're bouncing around and and so a lot of what we do uh quantitatively is you slap the you get the tag on there and it's sticking onto the animal but you don't really you're trying to get the camera facing forward or you're trying to get the heart rate over the right spot but that tag might not be facing in the perfect orientation it might be facing mm-hmm. down or backwards or whatever so a lot of what we do is a quantitative then um mathematical uh, changing of the axes so you can align the way that the tag is facing mm-hmm. with the way that the whale is facing and then you can then actually measure things like the animal's orientation its pitch and its roll and its and its direction in space but you have to orient the tag mathematically first so were it's you like a uh, post processing thing yeah yeah were you out recently uh like three weeks now i think it's been since we had the blue whales or did you get out there on the water no we haven't we've been uh we've been itching to we heard that there's some out there this spring but we haven't we haven't gotten a field season together yet this yeah they kind of they kind of pushed out i think they're not here right now but um there was there was some research boat headed out there that one day remember yeah i don't know whose it is i mean yeah. it was a red zodiac with the bow they all look on yeah it, they're all but- red I mean, I've even seen Oregon State trailer it down there, and you like I've seen Barb Lauberquist out there, and I'm like, wait, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know whose boat it was, but it was a red zodiac. Well, could have been the Moss Landing red too. They have a yeah, yeah. Actually, that might have been who it was. Do you have a favorite whale that you like to tag, like, or which, or an easier whale, like humpback versus blue? <laughs> uh, yeah, good question. I my it's hard not to love a blue whale for all of the reasons um it's but even specifically for research one of the things about blue whales is that they're so extreme they're the biggest animal of all time and uh one of the things that means is that their behaviors start to get a little simpler and so um versus a humpback whale can feed on fish or it can feed on it feed on uh different kinds of fish it can use bubble net feeding it can feed on the bottom it can feed on krill and so to study humpback whales means a lot of different varieties of behaviors that you have to kind of parse. You need a lot of data to really like work with humpback whales. Versus a blue whale, if it's really stereotype behavior and it's diving to depth, feeding a bunch of times, mm-hmm. coming back up, it allows you to kind of uh, draw conclusions more readily and, and, and more easily about the kinds of trade-offs that are involved with, uh, with holding its breath uh, to depth. And it's, you, don't, you can kind of gauge better what it's doing. So I, I, so I like working with blue whales and they're amazing to kind of see and, and work with um humpback whales are great they're gregarious they're they're like fun to be around um but they can be a little bit more difficult to study for that but the other animals i really love working with too are uh in the antarctic we got to work with minke whales um and and we went to there are minke whales in a lot of different oceans and there are different species than the ones in the antarctic there's the you know the the common minke whales up here versus the antarctic minke whales and uh but the antarctic ones are a little easier to tag because they can sometimes live in uh kind of not living but uh you'll f- be found in groups of five or seven animals and then when, when they're doing that they're in this social dynamic that's a little bit more distracted so you can kind of maneuver your boat up on them without really bothering them and you more likely get a tag on and they're feeding on krill just like a blue whale does versus minke whales up here might feed on fish have a little bit more complicated behavior in the antarctic they're feeding on krill and uh you can then do those comparisons like how does a minke whale feed versus how does a blue whale feed they're se- feeding on the same animals they're feeding on krill and they're feeding on these krill swarms in the same way using this lunch feeding strategy 
but yeah. um you know how how what are the differences like how why and why do you have this extreme size range what why can't you be a minky whale why can't you be smaller than a minky whale why is a minky <laughs> whale the smallest kind of lunge filter feeder why mm. can't you have something smaller than that? true those are kind of the questions that i'm working on uh, right awesome. now right before i got on this call <laughs> awesome. well, Man, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine trying to tag a minky whale here it's just so erratic oh yeah forget i don't think it. i've yeah. ever seen a group of more than like three you know and yeah. I've never seen a group of them. I think that'd be so cool. Yeah, that would be super cool. Yeah. Um, which type of whale does the tag stay on the longest? Because like humpbacks, I feel like work against you sometimes to get them off. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I was just looking through our, our krill feeding humpback data recently, and I was surprised that we actually had zero uh, tags that suction cup tags that stayed on humpback whales overnight. Um, they stayed on maybe until 10 or 11 p.m., but nothing that stayed on overnight until the next day. And I was, uh, I was really, I, di I didn't really realize that. We have, we had some fish feeders stay on for a couple of days, but none of the krill feeders. And so I was, uh, oh. I was it made my some of my analysis challenging. But uh, in the oh. Antarctic, actually, we've had tags stay on humpback whales um, for a week. Oh, and wow. uh, part of oh. the reason for that is that they have um, in in the cold water the animals don't shed their skin. You know, the whales yeah. don't shed their skin. They kind of like hold on to it to kind of, because it takes so much energy to regenerate that skin layer in really cold water. Mm. So they, they um, that's why like, I don't know if you've seen that killer whales in the Antarctic, they'll have that like yellow yeah. film on them and then they'll, yeah. they'll migrate up to warmer waters and shed their skin and then come back um, and then they'll be kind of fresh again. And then they'll get that yellow film of diatoms on their, build that up slowly over time. So one way you can kind of tell like a Mickey whale down there, whether it's been overwintered in the Antarctic or not, is whether or not it has that yellow film on it, whether it has that diatom oh, or whether it's not on the open shed its skin. And so though, because of that, uh, these animals often have really glassy, really smooth skin and suction cup tags will just stay on there for a long time. Um, and so we'll actually use like releases to, to get the tags back before the whale like oh, migrate. Wow. <laughs> it just stays on it for life. I had yeah, no idea. <laughs> Yeah, because I always thought the most they'd stay on is like 72 hours. Yeah. But yeah, that's typical. Uh, around yeah. here, we've never had one longer than 72 hours. Um, but in uh, in colder places, they can stay on for longer. You said that the krill lunch feeder, the humpbacks lunch feeding on krill stayed on less time than the fish? Yeah, and I don't know why that is. Why. Fish feeders are really more dynamic. It should, could just be random chance, like the whales that we have yeah. in the past. Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah, one of the things about studying whales is we're still kind of dealing with small sample sizes a lot, so yeah. it's sometimes it's hard to set, separate out like the uh, the random effects. Yeah, when I took a marine mammal biology class, it was like the teacher was like, "We are statisticians' worst nightmare. Our sample size is three, and we're happy that we got three. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, do you have some projects that you've worked on over the years that are like your favorite that like really stand out for you, either the field work or what you learned about the animal or anything like that? Yeah, uh, I my favorite data ones. I'll start there. Are looking at looking at when we can actually measure prey right next to a foraging whale. So if we have a uh, echo sounder, a scientific echo sounder that can measure the prey concentration on a small boat. We can kind of lower that echo sounder off the small boat and kind of follow 
the animal as close as we can to try to measure what is that prey concentration right where that animal is foraging and compare that to the bigger environment. Now that takes a lot of data and it's hard to do. So we're we're still like that's that's a future paper still. We're still kind of collecting that data part. But if you ever see me out there, that's probably what I'm trying to collect data for. That's that's my big passion is to kind of narrow down uh, the distribution of kinds of food that these animals get and how often they're actually feeding and and what they're actually how much they're actually kind of intake and, and working on. My favorite projects in the field. Uh, I love anything with with uh, with good people. You know, anything that you have a good group of people who are kind of who have a mix of experience levels and who are trying to. Um, you have new people who are trying to learn the ropes and and experienced people who know what they're doing and and it's uh, and it's fun to kind of have everyone working together for common goals. So the the best ones are the ones where we can kind of all be on the same on a big boat for a while and launch small boats off of it. We used to do this this uh, Southern California project, the behavior response study project, where we would rent a, a diving boat and go out to the Channel Islands. Um, and uh, we would have our small ribs, our rigid hull inflatables that have the bow pulpits on them to actually do the tagging. And we would kind of tow those behind the big boat or drive with those on the big boat, but then we'd all sleep on the big boat at night. And then we'd go out on the small boats to go on various adventures and we'd run, we'd run drones or um, uh, some of the, the sonar sources off of the off of the big boat. So these were behavior response studies. So basically, they were, we were looking with for the, um, uh, they're funded by the Navy to look at the effect of things like naval sonar on animals to kind of look at when and where should, should we restrict sonar use um, based, on, based on habitat use. And so we would uh, play these naval sonar sound, sounds back to these animals and then look at their responses. Uh, hmm. That was a neat, like, kind of direct applicable project to, to work on. Like some of what I do is like a lot of basic science. Like I like to understand what are these whales doing? Where are they feeding? Why are they so big? Why aren't they bigger? Why aren't they smaller? Yeah. And so we can kind of have a big understanding of how these animals work biologically, but the ones that have like a direct conservation application are also very interesting. Do you, do you have a, a direct conservation aspect or a project that's related to conservation that pops to mind, whether it be sonar or maybe ship strike or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, like the one I just described, that behavioral response study is one we're still kind of actively involved in. Like, how do whales yeah. respond to these to sonar? I'm looking at right now. Um, uh, my project for the summer is to look at uh, for these experiments that we did, uh, both our group and then the, a 3S group in the Atlantic with some European colleagues, um, with which we looked at more um, Adonis' beak whales and um, Bottlenose whales. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and look at their the effect of sonar on those guys. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do is quantify the energetic use during um, previous to the exposure and then during the exposure, um, and look for any uh, kind of less obvious effects on these animals um, compared to the the sonar period. So that's one one I'm working on. And then the other thing is just um, uh, the other kind of conservation ap application is just looking at really looking at the foraging style of these animals. Where do they feed? We're looking at one of the things we're looking at is um, the depth at which they feed compared to the bottom in Monterey Bay. And so you could look at like, well, what are your likelihood of, in, of interacting with fishing gear that's on the bottom? And what can we what can we what can we do about that? We there's there is this new paper that came out recently that we've been talking about one that says that we've been underestimating the amount that whales have typically eaten you know it's we think that maybe they could eat up to 20,000 pounds of food in a day right a blue whale 
Um, do you do you think research is showing that like as populations of whales continue to grow, that there might be a certain carrying capacity with the state of our oceans today with overfishing with with our populations? Do you think that's is there any data that shows or talks about that? Uh, well, I mean, all, all animals will have some carrying capacity, right? Some, yeah. some ability that the environment can support. I think your question is, is kind of, is there, is that number lower than it used to be? Yeah. Um, and, and probably, although I, I, that's just a, an intuition. I don't, it's hard to know. Yeah, for it's, sure. It, it's hard because we don't have data, right? Like one of the things that's hard, Back one of the things day. that's wild about studying whales is we have this opportunity where whales are coming back and we finally can like study like what happens as the population increases and how do they discover new niches and how do they how do they exploit new areas and how do they deal with a care at a carrying capacity versus a, a low population level and so that's that's a neat time to study but we don't have a lot of background knowledge yeah like we kind of search through the old you know moby dick type story to like look at what did whale what did whales used to be like um uh and uh and it's hard to kind of compare quantitatively, like, well, how many whales were there historically? So there are, there, are always... estimates, there are best estimates, and, and we can kind yeah. of look at those. But and but we'll see. I mean, like, blue whales are, have had a hard time yeah, coming back. Exactly. Right? They're not. That's... They're still low numbers. But things like humpback whales have come back probably to pre whaling numbers. So that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. I guess that's always my question is with with blue whales is that you know they seem to be right at that 2000 mark and i just always want to know like are they ever going to get past that like is it because krill is being spread out up up and down the coast you know like because here in santa barbara i mean typically is a really nice blue whale hot spot and for the last couple of years it's been extremely hit or miss there's either 50 of them here or there's zero so i always blue whales always intrigue me uh, at least their population in, in terms of does, is it gonna grow is it just gonna stay here forever you know like is that a carrying yeah. capacity deal? Is it a ship strike issue? I just always go back to that. So we have the same question in Monterey. What when it's a hot blue whale year in Monterey? Is it because it's really good in Monterey, or is it because it's really bad elsewhere? Monterey mm -hmm. is kind of yeah, really bad. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I usually ask the question kind of like in reverse. I'm like, is it so good here that this is the place to be, and it's not good anywhere else? That's what I usually to ask myself on the boat when I see a whole bunch of whales. I'm like, is this the only place to be? If so, that may not be the best thing. It's the only place and there's only 10 blue whales. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was probably more than that a couple of weeks ago. Further yeah. out too. I think if you went further up those canyons up towards Davenport, there would yeah. have been even more. But we just were around like the Soquel Canyon area. Well, that's the other thing. It's like our, our view of you know, whales along the West Coast is whatever, within 30 miles of the coast. I mean, who knows, you know, what's out there at the Davidson Seamount or, you know, other other mounts super far offshore, you know. I, I think mm -hmm. we have a very, you know, small sample size. Again, I guess that's what it all comes back yeah. to, is having a small sample size, but. Yeah. One of the, the other conservation questions we're kind of starting to ask is is about, uh, is, is that, like where, the idea of hotspots, right? Like these animals find, yeah. uh, places where the krill is really good for some defined period of time. And that can be a day where like the krill kind of cycles through based on currents, or it can be kind of a season. And so what's the dynamic, what's the duration of some of these hotspots and how important are they? Like California's done a good job of de defining marine protected areas all up and down the coast, right? Um, and those are places where there, there are no take zones or places that have some level of protection. But the important areas also kind of move up and down the coast as, 
things like Krill yeah. and Ancher was moved through the ocean. And mm -hmm. so can we have more of a, there's, that, there's a concept of dynamic ocean management. Can we make more real-time decisions based on where the big predators yeah. are and where the prey concentrations are and decide, okay, this year for this week, we have to protect this area because this is a critical thing. And if you start thinking about like, you know, offshore wind energy development and those kind of questions, can we kind of have a better sense of how those, where those important areas are? Yeah, we, we talked to, to John Kalamakitis a while ago about the, the channel here and the ship strike issue. And it's like creating, he was saying that creating a, a dynamic change in the ship strike or in the, sh the shipping lanes is actually worse for the shipping companies. They want a strict, you know, either you you go you can go this speed during this time or you can't, you know. And and recently with the lack of blue whales, it's like, is it really even worth it at this point? Like, is it okay to to have those different times of of faster speeds for the vessels when the blue whales aren't here? Because you know, for the past couple of years they have or haven't been here. But it's just interesting. I I I, I think that's obviously the way to go is to have a dynamic you know, change of rules and a dynamic ocean conservation agenda, but I guess that doesn't work for a lot of people. So it would, it would be cool if we could change like rules on the fly for that kind of stuff. Like just recently, this last past week in Monterey, there's been over a hundred humpback whales in the bay and then more closely to like right in front of Moss Landing within a quarter mile, there's been 20 to 50 humpback whales like all within one mile of the harbor entrance so you got hundreds of you know recreational and commercial salmon boats like just zooming out of the harbor and i mean it's mind-blowing that they have not hit a whale like there'll be seven whale watch boats or not uh, six or five or six whale watch boats all stopped in one spot and then just zipping right through them and it's like oh it's so scary and it's like how do you put like on honestly all they would have to do is just put like a uh five mile an hour zone between the harbor into like one mile out for that one, you know, week. Right. But how do you even tell all the voters that kind of thing? So it's where we're at with that too. <laughs> yeah. We probably need to, we need to do, we do need to do a better job of uh, aggregating that data. You guys are out mm -hmm. there every day and we need to do a better job of like getting, you know, aggregating that sightings data so we can kind of use that as a, as a source. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the, the direction like the crab fishery's been shifting is more of like a they make heat maps of like where the gear and where the whales are and like to try and reduce entanglements are sort of taking that approach and it seems seems a little better. I don't know if we can prove how much better it is yet, but seems to be less whales reported entangled from my personal experience. But um, I have a question about how you fund your work i'm assuming that a lot of it's grants and it's like constantly just looking for money type of thing how does it how does it work to fund research like what you're doing yeah yeah um you know if you're a listener at home i do take personal checks um, <laughs> yeah, seriously <laughs> me too we'll take a percentage we do we do rely on donations. We we do we do a kind of a mix of a lot of different sources. We don't have one funding source for things. We we do um, some government funded grants, National Science Foundation grants, or Office of Naval Research grants. The behavioral response study I was talking about was a was funded by the Office of Naval Research, and they'll fund both the actual field work, but also even uh, some like they'll fund some of the analysis. They'll fund a, a postdoc time or or a salary or a student salary or. Um, to uh, or the principal investigator salary to actually do this analysis and coordinate this work and actually 
make things happen. So there are some government grants for those for those kind of projects. Um, and then some of it, it will be, there are internal funds sometimes from universities to do some of this work. And then we rely on other foundational grants. Like there are uh, groups like the American Citation Society will offer um, mm -hmm. small grants to help fund some of our work. A lot of it, they do a lot of good work for students. So students can start doing projects um, down that way. And then we do rely on um, donations, both from individuals. So we have a, the California Ocean Alliance is our kind of a nonprofit group that um, uh, like both runs things like uh, outreach programs for high school kids, um, but then also will accept donations to help do research. And then we have, um, and then we also do work with uh, companies that want to do in-kind research. So we do a lot of like, oh, well, I'll volunteer, like, well, to work in the Antarctic, for instance, a lot of the work we do in the Antarctic with RE Friedlander's lab is uh, based on um, collaborations with uh, cruise ship companies. So they'll offer us transit down there um, so that we're, all of our kind of transit needs are taken care of and even sometimes give us a boat to do research off of, like a small Zodiac to do research off of. Um, and then in kind, we offer, we, um, you know, talk to the passengers and show them what we're doing and give a talk to the passengers. And so cool. they um, will support our research in those ways. So we have to be kind of clever and creative to do a lot of, a lot of this different research. I mean, I've seen you guys get the mic handed to you even when you're tagging in Monterey Bay. Yeah. <laughs> well, watch boat. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I have. I've seen that a couple of times, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, that's a good point that you brought up the California Ocean Alliance. Can you talk a little bit more about that organization? I've always been a little bit curious about it. Yeah, and just that it just uh, is a group of uh, us locally who decided who, who wanted to have a, a kind of a separate arm from the academic realm to kind of to do more collaborative projects. So we can like it's just a logistical thing, to be honest, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. The way to kind of synthesize a lot of the work that we do and uh, and 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 have a specific uh, mission of both education and research and be able to kind of fund some different projects that way. That's cool. That's a that's a good idea to kind of like pool your resources so that it's a little easier. Yeah, and it's something you know we change affiliations a lot. Like I've bounced around between universities and I've bounced mm -hmm. around. Uh, um, we, we often change positions, but if you have kind of one home that you can work with and say like, okay, well, we're still going to run this grant through our, through California Ocean Alliance and that can make it a little easier. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I, I mean, I have asked you this question before, um, more specifically about Monterey Bay, but I would expand it to maybe the ocean in general doing your work. Do you have like a favorite encounter or memory from doing field work with, um, it could be with any wildlife, I suppose, but um, mm. like one day that stands out to you. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've got, uh, I can say two, and, and they're not gonna surprise you. They're the times when the whales take an interest in you. And like that, that is really, that's a really powerful moment when, you, when mm. you're just out on a boat and a whale comes up to you. And it's, uh, I've had a friendly, friendly humpback encounters. Um, I was with John Kalamakitis, you know, six miles off the west coast of an unpopulated island off the channel islands and uh and and uh we were kind of waiting our our partner boats were stuck in bad weather and somehow where we were it was in the lee of the island and really nice weather and we saw one humpback whale and we took a biopsy sample to, to get a scent um to get its uh hormone levels and things like that and then the whale just kind of came up to us and just checked us out for over an hour and just was waving its its peck fluke around just kind of coming up to the boat and it was really, uh, it was really neat. We were just waiting there, waiting around for it, and it just kind of, and it just checked us out. 
And then in the Antarctic is another place where I've been lucky yeah. to, uh, there's a lot of the Antarctic animals are, you know, they're not, they're not used to seeing boats and people. Like it's not as, as crowded there as it is anywhere else in the world. And yeah. so these animals show a degree of curiosity. They're naturally inquisitive. And so they'll, they're like, what is this thing that is as big as an iceberg, but kind of moves around and has some noise mm -hmm. associated with it. And they'll, I've had the uh, monkey whales that we've tagged kind of come back up to us the next day and film us in the boats, you know, because they're just like that curious and just swim on the boat. <laughs> and a really good look at it. You're watching the tag data and it's you on the video. <laughs> That's right exactly. next to you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'll tell you, the first picture a whale took of me is better than the first picture I took of a whale. <laughs> <laughs> well, the camera's probably improved since then, too. That's awesome. So if people want to learn more about your work or, like, how to support your work, um, where is a good place to send them? Yeah, great. Um, uh, there are, I would check out uh, the California Ocean Alliance uh, as, a, as a place to support. And I have a lot of our research um, and kind of current projects up on, on my website. Um, and you can go check out all the new recent papers and stuff and davidek.com. Or you can check out uh, the, you can go to any of uh, the universities, either Jeremy Goldbogen's lab uh, webpage or the um, Ari Freelander's webpage at UC Santa Cruz are all good places to go. And then the other place, the, the great kind of West Coast collaborative place is Cascadia Research Collective. Um, they are based up in Olympia, but they do great work all up and down the coast. And so we put up, post a lot of uh, our videos from our tag videos up there. A lot of the gray whale work we do, we post with them. And they're kind of, they're, they're a, a, kind of an overarching organization that we work with a lot through a lot of the field work. So they, they're a great uh, place to kind of look at and check out. CascadiaResearchCollective.org. Awesome. Thank you for Sweet. that. Wow. Well, this was super fun to chat with you about all this stuff. We, I mean, I love hearing stories about putting tags on whales, but I didn't even know about the basking shark thing. So that was super yeah. cool. Yeah. So, awesome. Yeah. We really appreciate having you on. Cool. Well, thanks guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I look forward to, to hearing about your next adventures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, thank you to everyone that listens to the podcast. Um, we appreciate you all and those of you that support us in every way, shape and form. And um, do we want to do a secret whale of the week? Should we let Dave pick a secret whale of the week? Pick on the Instagram. Whale, on Instagram, they put it in the want. comments. Or yeah, it could be a shark. It could be an individual whale. It could be a type of whale. I got to go with uh, Vaquita. Okay. Uh, Vaquita, yeah. that's a good one. We haven't talked about one. them in a while. Yeah, yeah we, we haven't. haven't. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you guys soon. <laughs>